Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a clinician, military spouse, and advocate, and my co-host for this season is Sarah Foster, a first responder spouse, mom, and homesteader. Join us for season seven, where we invite you into honest conversation about life, family, and home. So grab that cup of coffee or head out for a walk. It's time to reconnect with what matters most. Through all the storms I'm by your side Through days of warmth I'm by your side Like the stars and the moon in the nighttime sky I'm by your side Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. We are doing... Um, this whole season on the theme of reconnect. And I wanted to bring in a great friend of mine. Her name is Jennifer, who I have known since my Colorado days when we were stationed in Colorado. She was part of the 361 family, as I like to call it, as we like to call it. If you have been a longtime listener of the podcast, um, actually, she was part of the 361 roundtable from like the first season. Um, this was, man, years ago, probably 2015 or something when a group of us girls from 361 got together and had a beach trip just to kind of have a reunion and talk about just how special um, that time of our life was going through just incredible stressors together, going through a mass casualty casualty situation together and lots of other really scary scenarios of losing um, our service members in action during that deployment. It was a very tough deployment for all of us. And so it bonded us like suffering, I think, does to a family. It bonded us in a very unique way. And so, um, but today I wanted to bring Jennifer back to the podcast because um, over the last, I believe, about four years ago, is it three or four now, Jennifer? Three and a half, right around three, three and, and a half years ago, um, I was notified around Christmas time that Jennifer's husband committed suicide. It was close to Christmas. And um, we knew a little bit um, that there was some struggle with some alcohol in there, um, part of their story as well. And so I know that those of you that are listening to this right now kind of hear that. And it's like, whoa, what are we about to go into? <laughs> and so it is a little bit of a heavier topic, but I wanted to bring or invite Jennifer to the podcast for several reasons. One, because she has the most incredible story of rebuilding herself after something traumatic. Um she's just an incredibly strong woman and I have seen her evolve in the last three and a half years. And so I hear from people so often of what does it mean to rebuild myself or reconnect with myself within my marriage or as a mom? What, how do I figure out what I love and what I don't love, what I need to do that's healthy for myself? How do I set healthy boundaries so that I can even start taking care of myself? And, and I hear people struggle with that all the time. It's something I even struggle with. But I also work with a lot of couples or individuals who are in some situations in their marriage where they need their spouse to change behavior because they're doing something that's destructive. And how do I help my spouse change that destructive behavior? And I've had so many conversations with people of like, what does it mean to navigate a messy relationship? Every relationship is messy with sacrificing your needs for their needs. And how do I set boundaries? How do I ask for that behavior to change? What happens when that behavior doesn't change? We've had lots of those kind of, kind of conversations and even some of if 
this marriage looks like it's not going to go towards a healthy place. What, what would it even look like for me to rebuild myself after that relationship and the, all the scary questions that come with that. And so reconnecting with yourself can look like so many different things. And so in thinking about this topic, I invited Jennifer to um, come and have a conversation with me about what that journey has been like for her. So regardless of where you are in your relationship, um, I think this is an important conversation. I hope you will just stay connected and, and listen to the whole thing, even though we might talk about some tough stuff. So Jennifer, my good friend, um, I'm so, so excited to have you on the podcast to share your story. Welcome. Thank you. I am honestly so excited to just be here with you. Um, I think when this first happened, you and I had a discussion and I remember saying to you at that point, like, I have to turn this into something good at some point. I have to get better first and I have to deal with all of it first. But when I do, I, I need to use this awful thing that happened to me and to my family um, for something good. And hopefully this is step one in doing that. It is, it is totally step one. And I know I, you, you've heard me say this many times, but you know, I really do truly believe that when we go through anything difficult and we're going to go through lots of difficult things in all of our stories, but I really truly believe that when we can get to a place when it is time to help someone else in their pain, it somehow brings purpose to what we've been through. And I totally believe that is like the whole next level of healing. And that's when I feel like we're really truly healing or starting to live out that healing. So do you, are you starting to feel that a little bit now? Does it feel like, I know you've heard me say that before, but what does that mean to you to actually start transitioning into sharing your story and bringing something good out of it? I, I mean, I think you're spot on, honestly. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work and a lot of it, you know, about, we've had a lot of discussions, um, unlearning things that happened in my marriage and words that were said that could never be taken back and, um, putting those pieces back into place and really finding who I am now as a single mom and not just a single mom, but a widowed single mom mm -hmm. and, um, putting those into practice in my friends group in my career and, all these things, it's been a really interesting three years since I actually started trying to work on this whole process. And um, for me, I mean, I know that this may, be, may not be right for everyone, right? But for me, um, it's actually really therapeutic to share this story because when I was in the worst parts, like the last year of my marriage, really, um, I felt completely alone and I isolated myself because I didn't want everybody to see how bad my life was and how hard things were in my marriage. And so to be able to turn around and share now that it really can get better, it's not easy and it really sucks sometimes. But if you keep grinding and keep pushing and keep doing it knowing that it's for you and for your children, if you have them, for your marriage, if that's what you're trying to save or to work on or to improve, then um, you just, you have to stick it out knowing that it does get better. Mm. I mean, we could stop record right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's go back. Um, I know it's hard to share, but to go back to um, 
before the traumatic incident of him killing mm-hmm. himself and and you were there when it happened or you were out of the room when it happened but you were there when it happened but yes. let's go back to some of the things that were happening in the marriage because I know that there was a lot of things that you both were trying to do to save the relationship that um some of the the things that were going on that there was this kind of ebb and flow of working on things but struggling with things and I know that there's a lot of people listening right now who really live in a place of there's some um, unhealthy behaviors happening in their relationship. Um, our good friend Alyssa, also part of the 361 family, joined me for an amazing couple of episodes. If you've not listened to her two episodes on alcoholism and how she and her husband have worked through that battle, um, oh, it was such, beautiful. So good. It was a beautiful so two, one of us, two of my favorite episodes. I had to do part one, part two. Um, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that. Um, So she's part of our 361 family as well. Um, But that was a little bit of what you guys were going through too. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing what those, um, especially those last years were like, um, especially with alcoholism going on and what you guys were trying to do, what was working, what wasn't working. There's probably a lot of people listening that struggle with something similar and don't know how to navigate it. So share a little bit of that story. Okay. Um, I mean, this sounds a little crazy, I think sometimes, but, um, you know, for years we had this idyllic relationship. We barely argued and, you know, friends would be like, oh, you guys are so perfect together. And we were, it was beautiful and amazing. Um, that deployment that you talked about and that we have talked about on the podcast before, um, I think set some things in motion for a lot of the guys that were gone on that deployment. Um, And for some of them, I think it set in much later and sort of started to present as an issue a lot later down the road, which um, is a whole nother, I could go on about that for days, but um, in our particular situation, it was, yes. I mean, right away, I don't think there was nothing that presented itself right away as a problem. It was many years down the road in our case um, when things started to spiral and, um, it kind of started his mom, um, died semi suddenly. She had been ill and in the process of trying to improve one issue, they discovered that she had cancer Mm. and it didn't, it, she was not around for much longer after that. And, um, she passed in 2014, right? 2014. Yes. 2014. And, after that is when everything sort of started to come out. Um, and he started drinking to deal with that and with some of the things that he had suppressed from his two previous deployments. And, um, he had a lot of guilt over not being around for his family, his parents, especially because we were moving all over the place. Um, he decided to separate from the army in 2016. So we moved Uh, back to our hometown and um, he had a very difficult transition he did not settle into civilian life um, very well at all and there were multiple factors in place on that one but he just he lost his sense of purpose to some extent Um, and it was then that it really his alcoholism really took a a really tough hold on him Um, can I pause you there just for a second? Yeah, because sure. 
Um, there's a lot of people listening that are facing that transition and considering getting out. And so can you maybe unpack a little bit what was difficult about the transition and what you see in hindsight made it more challenging so that those that are listening can can be thinking and thought and be thoughtful about that as they go into that transition, maybe some things that they can think about and be prepared for and address as they go of through. Course. Oh my gosh, of course. Um, a big one, a big one that I see as an issue across the board with military members, first responders, all of that is this um, stigma over seeking help mm-hmm. or just going to counseling to unpack everything. They go when they get home and they see someone twice and get a stamp and they're done or whatever it is. I can't remember now. It's been too many years, but um, they're he, a big thing for him, especially was just like, I'm fine. I, I don't have a problem. I like, guess you do. And it's not a bad thing to go and talk to someone about it. Um, and this was while he was still in the military. And um, when he got out, I kept encouraging him to go and talk to someone about the things that had happened on his deployments, about his guilt, about his mom and, and his grief with his mom. That's a whole process. And you have to unpack that bag. And he, um, just didn't and wouldn't. Um, but I think the other part of it is for us, he came back here to our hometown and I think had an expectation that because he knew a lot of people here that he would find a really amazing job that was fulfilling, had great pay. We would, you know, buy, settle in for about a year in a rental and then buy this beautiful, huge home and, you know, live this American dream, if you will. And that just isn't what happened. He ended up working with a friend who was also dealing with his own issues um, and they kind of fed off of one another. He didn't find his work fulfilling and um it's difficult to find friends as an adult when you're, when you're new and you have a whole different life experience and the people that have been around um, in a specific area. So, I mean, I think it was just a lot of things. And I think had he, he did end up finding a job with a really amazing company right before he passed. And I think had he tried to do that sooner and had we gotten involved in a church home or gotten involved in a um, something, an adult softball league, even, I mean, anything at all where there are um, other people around you to make you feel like you're part of the community. I think those things would have helped him. Um, but he was stubborn and wanted to do things his own way. And that's fine until it's not. And in this case, it ended up obviously not, not at all being fine. Yeah. And I love what you said about like, even if it's a softball league, it's about finding maybe a community with shared interests, like shared affinity groups, things that we have in common. Because it's really what the military or the first responder world is about, right? Like we all have this commonality of this thing that we go to work to do every day for maybe the same reasons. And so I think we've forget sometimes that there's a shared interest there. And so when we transition, we've got to find other people with those, with a shared interest in something. Right. Yes. And for some people it's easier than others, but for him, he he just kind of, you know, struggled to settle back in. So when the alcoholism started to really take off, um, 
I know you went through all kinds of how do I help? How do I support? When do I not help? Your own feelings of watching that happen. It's a whole roller coaster ride of just like, how do I know when to set boundaries? How do I know when to get angry and demand something? Do I set ultimatums? Like it just turns into a really difficult dynamic for any relationship. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that season? What was that like for the two of you? What was that like for you? And how um, how did things kind of really start to spiral from there? Um, I think at, at first when we, when we came back home, um, I thought he was just kind of, you know, a sowing his wild oats situation. We had lived such a structured life for so long. And, um, I think that I wanted to just let him get that out of the system. And then it became pretty evident pretty fast that that was not just a a temporary situation, that it was becoming a lifestyle. Um, and it started small for, on my side, I, you know, trying to put boundaries in place, like, okay, we have these things to do with our children. You need to be here at this time for that. or hey, I really need to go and do this this evening. I need you to be here with the kids so that I can go do that. And sometimes he would show up. Sometimes he wouldn't. Now, were you guys um, living apart? What was it? Was it just him coming home from work? What was going coming on? Coming home. It was coming home from work. We were we were together um, at this point living in the same home. Um, it wasn't until right near the very end that when things were very turbulent that um, I asked him to leave the home. So we ended up in this roller coaster, for lack of a better word, or cycle, I guess, even, um, where he would binge drink for about two weeks straight, almost, um, and taking ridiculous risks, driving, um, doing this while he's at work, which like I said, he worked for a friend, um, where they were not in a traditional office scenario. So it was a little easier for him to try to hide it, but, um, he would, he would just drink sun up to sundown basically. And then, um, sober up for a couple of days in the detox process and then stay sober for another couple of weeks. And then the whole process will start over again. So about every, you know, four to six weeks we were starting it over. Um, and it became very tiresome for me very quickly because we didn't have two young children at home. Um, I was trying to, to wait to go back to work and start my career over again. Um, until our youngest was in school because I, I wanted to be home with them. Um, so I was home with them all day long and then he would come home and be in that state. And then it was hard for me to sit by and watch it. Um, and not just from the perspective of this is the man that I love. Um, and I'm watching him destroy himself, but also he was destroying our family in the process. He was not being there as a father, um, always and not being there as a husband always and spending much more money in many cases than, um, than we had sometimes. And that was difficult as well. Um, which oddly enough came with a lot of guilt on my side because 
I was sitting there thinking to myself, well, I'm, I'm just staying at home. That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything to financially help my family either. Um, which eventually spurred me to get a job. And I always say God was in this one there for just a second, because you said, oddly enough, I felt guilty. Unpack that just a little bit because there's a connection, right? Because what was it that you were saying in seeing him be destructive? Were you saying that if I just were to get a job, then he wouldn't be so stressed and drink or like, what is it? Where's the guilt attachment there? I don't know that it was that. I think it was guilt um, that I knew what we were not providing for our children that I wanted to be providing for them at that time um, and the life that we were trying to achieve. And I I had guilt that I was not um, an active participant in it financially, I guess. Um which is, I, you know, I see that for what it is now. It was just me grasping at straws, trying to add any sort of stability mm. to our life. Um, but at the time I felt, I felt out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm a massive control freak. So to be, comp- have everything in my life, just going in a thousand different directions and spiraling on all ends, was a, it was an extremely difficult time for me. Um, I ended up finding the perfect job for me at the perfect time. I'm still there now um, and love it just as much now as I did nearly five years ago, whenever I started. Um, so that ended up, you know, that helped for a little while. Um, the, the week before I started, he went to rehab <laughs> for the first time. So that was a really fun transition for me um, to start a new job for the first time in about 10 years, nine years, I guess, and have my husband not be there to talk to about it or any of those things, but it was the right thing. And he needed to go. He learned a lot about himself while he was there. Um, And when he came home from, from, that first stint in rehab, I really thought that we were going to be on a good road. He was so humble. Um, he was willing to admit for the first time that he did actually have a, an addiction to alcohol. And he really, really was working um, the program for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was very hopeful mm-hmm. when he got home that it would be better. Um, and it was for about three months. <laughs> And then we started the cycle all over again. Um, so that would have been the end of 2017. And um, when it started again, it, it, it went hard and fast. I mean, it, we went from about once every four to six weeks going through that process of binging, getting caught, admitting he had a problem, sobering up, being sober, previously that would last, like I said, four to six ish weeks. And it was about every three weeks mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and he was getting more and more volatile. Well, and I, at that point, I think I remember at this point, you were not really reaching out for support on that. And so, um, as things started to spiral downward, um, 
two questions. One, I'm sure someone right now is listening going, how, how did you mentioned that you asked him to leave? And that's, you know, often a question I get is like, how do I know when to set the boundary and how do I set a boundary? Right. Um, I always tell people we often know what the boundary needs to be and we often know we need to set it. What's harder is enforcing it. Like it's the mm-hmm. next step of enforcing it. And then it's the next step of what happens when they don't honor that we've had to enforce that step. Those are the hardest steps. And those are the things we often try to avoid. And so we know usually what the boundary needs to be. It's like, what is this going to take for me to set the boundary? That's the hardest. And so as things started to spiral for you guys, I'm sure somebody's asking that question, like, how did you know? And how did you communicate that? How did you know it was right for you? Um, but also there were some very big things that I think that you didn't realize that you were learning, taking on, carrying during that season two um, that you often don't know in hindsight. So um, as you kind of share when things started to really spiral downhill, um, how did you, what was that internal process for you like of deciding how to set that boundary um, and what what did that take internally for you to go through that process? I know that's a big question. Okay. Uh, that's um, for the setting of boundaries. I don't know that there was a specific moment um, for me, or there was, you know, something that I can say without as a firm, like this is the time outside of, and these are my personal ones. If he ever laid a hand on me or my children, or if he ever cheated on me, those for me were hard boundaries. Mm-hmm. He never did any of those things. Um, did that make it fact, harder? There was incredibly, incredibly, because um, like you said, I wasn't reaching out to anyone. My best friend and my mom were the only two people on this entire planet that knew what was going on. Um, and his um, brother and his wife because he worked with his brother. And so they saw it every day. Um, so they knew, but not within our home and the things that were going on in our four walls, only my mom and my best friend knew. And I, I had done that. I did that to myself. I, I'm not saying that I would do it again necessarily. I would hope that I wouldn't. Um, I did that. And I think a lot of people do because there's a hope that they'll get better. Mm -hmm. There's this hope within you that something will change. And if you're talking to people about it and you're being open about what's going on in your house, that when they do get better, there's going to be a lot of shame Mm -hmm. associated with that. Or that um, if people aren't witnessing it for themselves, there might be this feeling that, oh, maybe they don't believe me. Mm -hmm. Or just a whole host of, of, of scenarios, right. That run through your head. And that's why you kind of distance yourself or, um, don't talk about it like I did. And I, looking back, I wish I could change that. I do because I have talked to so many people since then that are like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that that was happening, but it's going on in my house too. Can we please talk about it? Mm. And I felt so completely alone during that time because I couldn't talk about it with anyone. I didn't want people to know. And even just to have one lifeline, just one, someone else that knew what was going on in my house could have changed my entire outlook Mm -hmm. on it because then you have someone to commiserate with. You have someone to 
talk through things with and all of those things and someone that knows what's going on and how you know they've dealt with it or are dealing with it um but it was it was incredibly hard for me to reach the point where I was willing to ask him to leave our house um incredible hard. oddly enough the the first time I did it um and it happened multiple times, but the first one <laughs> was after a Justin Timberlake concert. I really odd, um, but he had purchased a car earlier that week without asking me. A car. And a car. He had traded in his truck that he used for work for a sports car, and we had two young children, one of whom was still in a convertible car seat at the time. So, you know, there was no room for that car seat in this car. And obviously he was not um, thinking about that at the time. So that happened. And then the day of the concert, he and I were supposed to go together. And I came home to get the kids to the sitter and grab him to go to the concert. And he was passed out drunk in our bed and um I called his brother asked his brother to come to our house to get any weapons out because I was afraid of what would happen if I were not there when he woke up um, because he had started talking about harming himself at that time I didn't believe that he would do it but as we progressed through the next few months, I started feeling more and more like that was a real um, possibility for him. Um, and I took my best friend to the concert and it was after that, that. Okay. Let me stop you again because <laughs> yeah. what a, what a significant decision for you to like, why, I think that, that to me, that's like one of those moments of starting to reconnect with yourself and seeing value in yourself to go like, why not abandon? So many people would have abandoned the concert out of fear that he um, might harm himself sure. out of like, right. And you were like, no, I'm going to make sure there's no weapons in the house and I'm going to go to the concert. Yes. And I, it's, I'm sure that someone is sitting there going, gosh, this woman is so selfish and maybe so. Or strong but. or strong. And that is the thing for me. It was, I had been sacrificing everything. I did not go anywhere with friends unless he was at work uh, and the kids were whatever. Or if, if I was with friends, it was at a play date at someone's house. So, you know, all of those things. I had been giving up all of myself for his benefit, trying to help him get better and for our children to make sure that they were well taken care of and safe. And this was one thing that I said, you know what? I already have a babysitter lined up. We are good. I am not missing this concert that I've been wanting to see. I had been wanting to see him for years mm -hmm. and I had the ticket and they were on the floor. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was not about to abandon this event that I had been looking forward to so much because he could no longer control himself hmm. and it was hard. And I spent the entire night worried about him, but I also enjoyed myself so much and saw that I can still do this. I can hmm. still 
do things that I enjoy, I just have to put everything in place to make sure that if he does find a way to harm himself, then he has really had to go out of his way to do it. And that my children are safe. Mm -hmm. And as long as those two things are in place, I can actually step back and take a minute for myself to breathe because I, all that, that whole time, I felt like I was holding my breath or um, I had gotten a little too far out in the ocean. And every time I popped my head above the waves to like take one gasp of air, another wave came and just kept hitting me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if you feel like that is selfish, that's fine. I feel like it was what I needed to breathe at the moment. No, so. I, I think it, it sounds like perhaps one of the, maybe not the first moment, but maybe one of the biggest first steps of you going, of you starting to reclaim some of that territory for yourself. Yeah. And so I know that was linked to you eventually asking him to leave the home. And I, it's, and I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that was the beginning of also a series of boundaries you started to set. Um, and I, I know that one of the scariest things for people is if I start to set the boundaries, then what will they do? And, Mm -hmm. and I know that that's something you've had to work on too, because ultimately he did end up taking his life. And so I think there's been a lot of like untying that you've had to do over the years of, of how, how much influence of me setting my boundaries, how much did that influence his decision? Right. So let's maybe kind of walk through that. Cause I know like what we're, what we're really wanting to do here is to really share how you've actually rebuilt yourself. And this is the beginning of that, even though we have to go through those really tough last, you know, that last season. But for Mm -hmm. me, yes, you have like incredibly done some hard work to rebuild yourself. But to me, I look back and I see that moment of you going to that concert as actually the beginning of that. It just kind of had to go down before it came up. Would you agree? I agree. hundred percent. I agree. Um, I didn't obviously see that then. Um, I don't, I couldn't see more than a couple inches in front of my face at that point in time, but, um, it did. I asked him to leave not very long after that for the first time. Um, we did that three times, four times, um, of asking him to leave before he officially left or him moving out three times, asking him to leave the home. Um, the first time it was, it was temporary and it was always going to be temporary. Um, he needed to get sobered up, but I was tired of him doing that in our house and doing that in front of our children and having to explain to them, um, what, why dad didn't feel good. So the first time after that, the concert, I asked him to leave and he was gone for a few days. I think it was five. And that was my intention that first time, like maybe just maybe kicking him out of the house and making him go and have to do that in someone else's home and have someone else see just how bad this is will spur him um, to finally, I don't want to say get better because that seems so wrong. He was sick. At the end of the day, he was sick. He had an illness. Um, Addiction to me is not a choice. It is something that is triggered and you have to fight every single day to be better, to but maybe that's what you wanted. You stay wanted away to from fight. That. 
I did. I did. And sometimes I felt like he wasn't. And I think I used that analogy with him a few times. Um, I, I related it to cancer. Like if you have cancer, you're going to go to the doctor, you're going to fight, you're going to try every treatment known to man to get better. And to me, alcoholism was really no different. Like try everything until you find what works. Um, so yeah, that first time he, it was always meant to be temporary. Um, he came back, it was better for a couple of weeks. And then we started the process again. Um, and you know, rounding to the end, sort of the end of the story here, he, I had asked him to leave again in October. And that was the third or fourth time he'd been through the process of him leaving the house. And this one to me was going to be at least semi-permanent. Um, I told him he was not allowed to come back until he had gone to rehab again. And then he was to move into a sober living house um, somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to be sober for a minimum of three months. I didn't tell him that part, but in my head, that was the number um, and prove that he could do it before he came back to live with us. Um, I allowed him to come home. He had been sober for about a week and a half. I think at that point, I allowed him to come home on Halloween to spend Halloween with the kids and me. Um, it stormed terribly that night and I didn't want him driving back to where he was staying because it was about an hour from us. So I allowed him to stay the night and when the kids and I got up and left the next morning, I woke him up and I asked him to leave. He did not. And he stayed there and ended up drinking during the course of that day. So that to me was like, you can't even stay like a, a hold to this one thing that I've asked you to do. So at that point, I think I just got really mad and was like, go away. Like, leave us alone. You need to go worry about you. I am going to worry about us. Go, go deal with it. You go to rehab, go to sober living. I will talk to you on the other side of it. I am so angry right now that I don't want anything. Just please go get better. Another thing I guess that I did for myself, I went on an all adult female trip to Disney World. Mm-hmm. like two days later after I, after Halloween. Um, and on that trip, my dad was at home with my kids. And on that trip, I remember being terrified that he would do something rash, that he would go and pick up our daughter from school or from daycare. Um, and not kidnap them or hurt them, mm-hmm. but, take them so that he could see them but then he was drinking and so you know what happens when they get into an accident or what happens when he passes out and my three-year-old at the time needs something and he is not coherent enough to deal with that um and he showed up at our house while my dad was there with my kids and it was in that moment while I was a thousand miles away and in the happiest place on earth Mm. that I realized that if I didn't end our marriage, I was never going to have my own life again. Um, Because I would never be able to trust that he was sober enough for me to do anything 
or go anywhere without my kids with me. And that's just not fair. I should be able to go do something and trust that I can leave them with my husband and that they will be taken care of and safe. Um, We got home from that trip. He went to rehab again and it was, I mean, a couple days after he got back, he was already drinking again. So I, it confirmed to me that I was making the right choice. Um, that was early December. And I decided I'll wait until the new year and then I will file for divorce. And we didn't get that far. <laughs> um, he was not living in our home at the time of his death, but he had called and asked if he could come to the house and have dinner with us and get some more clothes so that he had enough clothes for work. And then, so he came home, we ended up arguing over something. I don't remember now what it was, but we were arguing and, um, I remember him saying something along the lines of, I can't live without you. And I think he knew that I had come to the end of my road, that I was ready to leave the marriage. I hadn't told him that yet. Um, But I think he had kind of figured it out. And I remember so distinctly and why this one part of the conversation is what sticks out to me is beyond me, but it does. I remember very distinctly saying to him, why does it always have to be about me? You have two little girls in there that need their dad. So you need to remember that and not do anything foolish. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 minutes later, he took his own life. So hard to share. And I'm so proud of you for the amount of courage to share. Cause it's, um, it's personal, it's sacred. Um, it's not, um, easy to talk about either. Um, and I know you've done a lot of really hard work to even be able to share all of that. Um, even some of the details of what that evening is like. And, you know, I know a lot of people are listening and are going, if you've, if you've ever been in a unhealthy dynamic in your relationship where suicidal thoughts have been there. And there's so much pull, right? When someone says, has either threatened it or talked about it or said something like that, like, I don't know if I can live without you. It's so easy to abandon yourself in that moment and, and feel that tie of almost like I'm keeping you alive, right? So I, I will do whatever you need me to do right now so that you don't make that choice. Right. And so then you get pulled into the begging or the pleading or, and then we vacillate, right? We go back and we get hooked in this, what some people call a crazy eight pattern of, I'm so angry that you would put me in this situation of the unhealthy drinking and the destructive behavior, and then even guilting me into, and that's a hard thing to say out loud, that I feel guilty that that you're saying you're only staying alive if I'm with you, right? And so yeah. 
you get yes. really angry and then you get pulled into this guilt pattern of, well, I'll abandon myself because I don't want you to do anything. And I'm so afraid that if I were to set this boundary and you did do that, then I'll live with that for the rest of my life that I set maybe the boundary at the wrong time. So I abandon myself and then I go back into, well, you didn't make the choice. I'm so glad you didn't. And then now we get to the next day and now we're angry again, right? Like yes. I, yes. like what you just put me, like you feel better right? You feel better because I drew close to you so that you wouldn't make this choice. But now I'm angry because I had to abandon myself in order to get you in a good spot. Yes. Now I've done all the work and you've not done the work. And all I'm asking you to do is to do some work, to fight. And yet the next day, I'm the one that had to fight for us. I'm the one that had to sacrifice the feelings that what felt really healthy to me of me asking a very healthy boundary to ask you to fight. But now here I am abandoning and doing the fighting for both of us. And now I'm exhausted and angry and you didn't fight. And now we start all over. And, I, and that's mm -hmm. where we get to that place of exhaustion that tells us we have to set a healthy boundary because I'm so tired of doing the fighting. So yes. I know that's something that you still struggle with when you say, maybe that sounds selfish to someone out there, but that's part of that crazy eight of like, it should, it should, maybe that sounds selfish for me to say I'm angry that I had to do all the fighting. Cause isn't that, isn't that what you do in marriage? You fight for your marriage. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fight for our spouse, fight for their health in sickness or in health. Right. And so yes. I'm supposed to fight and sacrifice something for me, but we, at some point it gets unbalanced. If we are the one that's always sacrificing, always fighting and where do I end and the other person begins and when is it their turn? When do we share the fight? When do we battle together? And when is it time for my spouse to fight and fight hard and me rest? Is right. that selfish I, to ask for that? I think that that's where the, the, analogy I had used about cancer treatment to him over and over and over again there was a moment while we were at Disney World where it flipped the script flipped in my head and I was like hi <laughs> welcome you have been doing all the you are not only the patient you are the doctor you are the you have been all the things for him mm. at some point you are allowed to say there is nothing else that I can do here. Mm. And I'm not sure. I, it wasn't that I didn't love him anymore. I did. I loved the man that I married. And there was this separation um, when he started to get sick and it slowly dwindled. But there was, I still very much loved him. I was not in love with him anymore, but I loved him. Mm -hmm. And that was a really hard moment for me. Um, to come realization but then it was also so freeing at the same time and I think that that was when I knew um that it was time like it it's time it is time for you to separate those two things the the man you loved is no longer the man that exists and the man you exist you can still have love for him but you do not have to be married to him to support him, mm. to have love for him, to want for him to be better. You can separate those two entities and make a life for you and for your children that is healthy, that lacks this chaos that they have been living in for the last two to three years. And 
where you can control what's going on in their home life. And then the only, the only piece you have to worry about is what's happening when they're with dad. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When they're with dad, you can work it into your divorce (laughs) agreement that they don't get to be with dad without another adult there until dad can get sober and stay that way. Mm. So you know that they're safe in that space as well. And it was that moment that it, it changed my whole outlook and I still felt bad about it because I wanted him to get better. I wanted to salvage our marriage, but I think I knew that it was, there was just no doing it. It wasn't going to happen. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. We keep things pretty simple around here and don't include sponsors so that you can get our focused attention. So please subscribe, leave us a quick review or share it with other service families you know. If you would like more information or want to connect, you can find out more by going to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org for tons of content and resources and encouraging you to create more margin in your life as well.